Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode six of the podcast. This time, producer, audio engineer, and saxophonist Jeff Countryman enters the vibe chamber. But before that happens, I want to let you guys know that this is a video podcast as well. The show is actually recorded and streamed live to YouTube right as it's happening. So if you want to see full episode archives, clips from the show, or you want to see when I'm going to be live next, you can check out the vibe chamber on youtube.com. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Jeff Countryman, how you doing? Hey man, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, where are you coming to us from right now? The basement of my house in Queens. Nice. What part of Queens are you? <laughs> Middle Village. It's near, you know, like uh, Elmhurst and all that stuff. Gotcha. How far out of the of city? Queens are here. How far out of the city like, is that? It's like uh, seven miles, I think. So not far. I mean, it's like... What train I take, do you take? Well, if I take a train these days, I haven't been, but uh, I generally it's like the M train is the the into Middle Village. It goes down mm-hmm. here. But I, I actually been now with all the COVID stuff and everything. I take the uh, a scooter. I have an electric scooter that I take in and out, and it takes it's thirty five minutes door to door to Midtown. So wait, do you take it over the bridge? Yeah, over the Queensboro on the bike. Oh, lane. nice. Okay, yeah. so I want to ask you some. I had a one class with you so far. It was supposed to be three, actually. I was supposed to have two. <laughs> And I was going to, these are questions that I wanted to kind of ask in class. And yeah, but now that's in a public setting, I want to go back a little bit to your, to your origin and what you do. So where are you from originally? From California originally. So San Jose and then a little town outside of there, of, uh, of San Jose, like right near Berkeley, the first town out through the tunnel to Berkeley. So it's uh, Moraga, Arinda, Lafayette. That's where I grew up. I know a bunch of people from Berkeley that go to the, the new school. It seems like Berkeley is one of those places where it's like, a kind of a conglomerate of people who are in some yeah. form, you know, music related, you know, whether I've, I've like- run into a lot of them and there's, a, there actually is a music group. There's a, a thing that it, it was new when I was, when I was growing up that I did, it was called Oaktown jazz workshops that like Ad, that. Am, Ambrose Atkin Musery was in it. Um, that's how I know him really well. And uh, Dana Stevens, the saxophone player over there. And uh, like a, a bunch of guys were, started that cause they were all Berkeley high guys. And um we were doing that. And now I, it's so weird how I still run into people that were like, that went through Oaktown. I've, yeah. I've had several students. I've run into people like, young, I, I see it often with like anyone I see that's, that's playing a gig or something, even that I'm recording or something at like the Iridium or something. I remember this happened recently where it was like a younger person that was from Oakland. And I was like, by any chance, did you go through the Oaktown jazz workshops? And like <laughs> nine times out of 10, they say yes. It's kind of like so. the uh, like second city Chicago for comedians, you know, I, like there is something to that. I think there's definitely, it's like Berkeley high Oaktown jazz workshops, probably. And then New York. So was that jazz workshop? What got you into music and playing the saxophone? No, I mean, I started when I was in fifth grade, just because band programs and all that. So my, my, I had my uncle's old con student saxophone that he had uh, given to me. So, you know, I just, my parents were both musicians. So they were like, yeah, you guys you do whatever you want. My brother plays guitar. My sister's a flute player. So. So was what was it that got you to want to go to the the jazz workshop specifically? Was jazz just always a big influence on you? I yeah, I mean I think so. My dad used to listen to this trumpet player that uh, well he used to like have all these. He was a trumpet player himself, but he used to listen to um, Don Ellis. I don't know if you know Don Ellis, the trumpet player. I vaguely know the name, but I can't yeah. say for sure. I just think I know it. Pretty obscure dude. Um, that was uh, I think a Bay Area guy actually, but he was like electric trumpet and he played like a quarter tone trumpet he had all this stuff and i remember that was some of the first stuff that i listened to from my dad's record collection where i was like oh this is really cool what the heck is this so it was more like experimental jazz and stuff like that but um yeah so from you, there it, were you playing were you playing experimental jazz early on when you were just starting out i mean you, you could probably call it that but probably not I remember <laughs> not I, on I, purpose. <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah definitely not i remember when i like uh, i remember like in i guess it was high school where like I used to have this trio with this rock. He was like basically a rock drummer, didn't know anything about jazz, but he played that. He just smashed the drums and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, which fun for me, because like I honestly realize that more and more as the older I get, I'm like, I probably wanted to play guitar and I just end up playing the saxophone. But that's and that's what it was. But uh, I definitely like the rock thing is where I where I gener- generally lean towards. So, uh, yeah, I remember we had a trio. We were playing. Um, what's that song? Juju. You know, that's like a whole tone. Yeah, we I do like, know that tune. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, I, I felt like I was having a psychedelic experience. We were playing for like 25 minutes and we're, you know, it's like a bunch of teenagers playing Juju. I felt like that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever done. But at the same time, it was like super fun. I remember, Stuff like that was always super fun to me, you know, it was like so rocking besides, out. 
Yeah, besides Don, who were your other influences? But I mean, back then it was it was all all those my dad's records and everything. It was all like he had a really weird record collection. First of all, he might be the world's biggest fan of Jethro Tull that ever existed. Oh wow! So like my first concert I ever went to, and then my second and probably fifth, all the way through fifth, was Jethro Tull. Mm -hmm. So I listened to a ton of Jethro Tull, um, and then it was like you know Jimi Hendrix, all that stuff, and and he had all those records and. So those, those, as far as like the non-jazz stuff, just stuff that I would listen to and obviously still listen to that it was that kind of music. Um, and then like classic rock, all that stuff. And then I had an older brother. And so my older brother was like nineties rock guy. So I was a lot of Stone Temple Pilots, a lot of Pearl Jam, a lot of, um, what's that song? Don't, don't kill the rooster. That was, uh, Allison Chains, a guy at Soundgarden. Like yeah, I had all the, that was like totally my brother's end. And then I started getting into jazz and it was like, I would listen to, you know, obviously Charlie Parker, all that stuff I love, but, um, you know, once I, it, it's sort of like Josh Redman and those guys, uh, and Josh Redman is also a Bay area guy. So I got to meet him a few times and, and that was like a, you know, a big thing. You feel like you're meeting your heroes and it, yeah, you are, and it's, it's, it's super great. So those, those kind of guys, it was, and a lot of guitar players. I liked, I always liked like our, my brother was a big fan of Pat Metheny. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. And, uh, so I used to go, we would, we would, go to Pat and concerts, which was in, in its own way, kind of like a rock concert, which was awesome. Um, and we do a lot of that stuff. So yeah, just, I mean, it was like really kind of eclectic. I, I you know, I kind of listened to whoever Coltrane, obviously all the stuff that, you know, as you move through the jazz language and you learn about it, you're, you like get introduced to new guys and you're like, Oh my God, I, well, how have I never heard this? You know? Yeah. And how long was it till you got, cause I know you mostly uh, as an audio engineer yeah. uh, and, and a producer, how long yeah. after starting the saxophone did you start getting into that? Honestly, not until I moved to New York and it was completely on a, a lark. It was like not I, I never intended to go that route. I had started in college. It was like, you know, you could take a Pro Tools class and you could do all those things. And I was like, well, that seems like it would be good to know. Uh, and then I was like recording my own stuff. And I mostly did it so I could record my own stuff and not have to pay anyone. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, made it made it for a good, inexpensive thing to hobby to get into because it was like, well, this makes sense to do. Uh, but I had this buddy in college that I met. Um, we were both interns at Saturday Night Live, uh, mm -hmm. where we both still work together now. But so we were we were hanging out a lot. And he was he was big into recording. He was a, a jazz guitar player, but he was big into recording stuff. And I started to get into logic because I studied with uh, Lenny Pickett, the saxophone player from Saturday Night Live. I started getting into logic into college because he did. He would make backing tracks. He had all these backing tracks he would make um, and then he would play along to them. And I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he started to teach me for our lessons. He would actually just teach me logic. And I, that's how I started to get into that. And, and I learned a lot about like the sampling parts, all that kind of stuff I got into um, in an age where like not, not everybody at that time was doing that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, in, in the class, like making tracks and doing all this stuff. And then I got asked to do a session with Kenny Werner, the jazz piano player. Of course. Yeah. Um, he asked me to, to co-produce a record with Lenny actually. And um, that was like my junior or senior year in college. And uh, it was a crazy record. It had Chris Potter, Brian Blade, Scott Colley, Kenny, and, uh, and Dave Douglas. Mm. And we did it over at the studios, uh, Paul Wycliffe Studios. And I was like, I drove everybody, you know, at that age, I, I was doing whatever. I would like, you want me to go like pick up Brian Blade's drums for you? Said, sure. Yeah, of course I'll do that. So I did that session. And, I, and what I did for it was I did all the like, all the auxiliary stuff it's called uh i think it's called what it's called armchair society i think it's called armchair society if i'm remembering okay. that correctly but uh and it's a cool record it's a it's a kind of a weird one lenny produced it i co-produced it sort of with him and then or assistant produced i'd probably be a better idea but kenny wanted to do all this midi stuff and he didn't really know logic or anything so i got it i was like his logic guy i did all the synthesizer stuff and then through that um, Dave Douglas was on that record. Dave had a record coming up that he was like, Hey, would you, or he had a recession coming up at the jazz standard. He was doing a, a week at the jazz standard with his quintet. And he was like, would you be interested in recording this? And I was like, uh, yeah, but I definitely didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, mm -hmm. I like, I, had, I knew my way around logic and everything, but I, as far as live recording and all that kind of stuff, I was like, uh Oh, I kind of bit off more than I can chew. But um, I knew that Tyler, my partner, who, who we came, became partners, we, we knew what we were doing. So we started, we said yes, we did the gig and somehow, really somehow we pulled it off. It was like ridiculous. The, the gear, we had like no gear. 
we were doing, it was off the board, but we mixed the board and then we had to mix the entire thing and upload it that night. Each day we uploaded. And so Tyler and I would sit there and mix and edit and then we'd upload it that night. And this was before Dropbox or any of that stuff. So man, it was a drag. It was like dot Mac or something. And it was. How long would it take to upload a session like that? Hours. It would be like, it would be like two hours. And you know, cause we're, we're talking like 2004 or whatever that was. So the, mm-hmm. it, it was not the same. Luckily we did it. We both went to NYU. So we did it at the NYU offices so we could use their ethernet connection and upload it faster. Cause if you had to do it at your place, it would have been absolutely. I was miserable. on like, Oh, I was on like DSL. My internet was terrible in Queens where I was living. It was awful. So yeah, we couldn't actually do it that way. So we somehow or other, it worked out that records out. It's uh, live at the jazz standard with the Dave Douglas quintet, mm-hmm. um, which was a, crazy that that was the first thing we ever did and then from there basically we do we still work with dave all the time um but that that was like really the foray that was like okay now we're doing this and uh and that's when we started i started accumulating gear and you know really getting into the whole thing yeah so it seems like that your internship at snl was really what kind of spawned off this 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 type of path you're going on what was how did how did you land that internship and how old were you i was a sophomore in college and it was Lenny had just been asked to teach at uh, at NYU and that no one had ever asked him to teach anywhere. So he but he turns out to be a great candidate for that because he is always around because he can't go on tour because he's got the show. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if he goes on tour, it'll be for the summer or anything like that. But he's never missed a show. He's done over. I think it's like 600 shows in a row without missing one. Not even a uh, sick day. No, he'll show up completely sick and still play. Jeez. I mean, not anymore, obviously. Oh, yeah, now you, can't, in, yeah. you can't now. Yeah, but he has done it. He has done it before, like like middle middle of, after the commercial break, finding a place to go, like throw up kind of vibes. He's yeah. like a warrior, true warrior, that guy. But anyway, so he um he was he would started teaching there, and I and I uh, I was like, oh my god, this is this is my dude. I mean, when I bought my mouthpiece when I was a kid, I was like, can you make me sound like that guy? I didn't even know his name, but of course that's not the way it works. But uh, I was like, you know, what do I, what mouthpiece can I get to sound like that guy at the end of the TV show? So anyway, um, he, so I was immediately like, great. So I was one of his first students and just randomly the intern they had, uh, got fired actually for asking for tickets on the show. And, uh, cause that's like a total faux pas. Like you don't go around to the writers and be like, Hey, can I get some tickets for my friends? That's like, what are you doing? Yeah. So Lenny, Lenny just was, was said, do you want to take this internship spot? And I said, sure. Um, and then what happened after that was his son was doing the library. He was the music librarian. His son was, and then his son moved out to LA. So he asked if I wanted to do that. And I've been working ever since, ever, ever since then. And since you landed the job, you know, that wasn't just the internship. What has your role been and has it changed? Yeah, it changes all the time. It's a little weird. I, I mean, I've been there. So now this is, I think my 16th season. So for the Congratulations. first, uh, thanks. Yeah, it's been, it's great. I mean, it's crazy that a show is still on. It's just the crazy 46 thing. seasons in. Yeah. Unbelievable. So I started. I started at season thirty, I guess. But uh, yeah. So basically, what I did was, um, I was as an, I mean, as an intern, if you work for the music department, it, it it varies what you do. But my responsibility back then was to basically be like a helper for the live band. So I would I would move people. I would make sure that they were in the right places, you know, and and make sure there were you know dressing rooms are taken care of, and then the grunt work of like Nora Jones needs this kind of wine. You're going to go buy this kind of wine, kind of stuff, you know, the gopher um, kind of stuff. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It was like, and, and, and there's a definitely a place where I, it makes sense why some people aren't, aren't down with that. Cause it's like, well, I thought I'd be like, you know, wheeling and dealing. It's really like, I just try to stay out of the way. Uh, and, and it's fun to observe. I mean, the first, the first show I ever worked there was Toots and the Maytals with the Roots with Jack Johnson and Ben Harper and uh, Bootsy Collins. All so you on must that have been show. thrilled no matter what you had to do. It was awesome. I was getting to see them and I was like supposed to be there. You know what I mean? It was like, (laughs) it was crazy. I don't get why people get so upset about like, especially when they're really early on in a thing and it's like an internship or even a paid job when it's early on and they're like, oh, I thought I'd be doing something cooler. It's like when you're at a level like that, it's like, geez, you get to hang out. There are people who would wait out for five hours just to sit in that room. And you see it. And you, we used to walk out and be like, this is nuts. This, I mean, you know, like I, I get to see this all the time. So that was that was also the first show. So it was like, this is totally crazy. Um, I was like going to get I was the guy who had to go get the roots from the sixth floor. And they were like not they were not 
they had flown in from somewhere and they were like not too happy to see me. And I was like, not their friend. And then after that, I was like going to get Bootsy Collins. I don't remember. He needed like not some new star glasses or something, but I was like, this is great. What am I doing? Um, And then, you know, you're hearing Questlove plus the toots. It was, it was nuts. But anyway, so uh, yeah, so that was the internship and it, it, it varied, you know, you do all kinds of different stuff like that, but it was, it was really cool. Just it's an amazing backseat or a, a backstage thing. Cause it's literally backstage and it's really incredible. Um, and then what I started doing was the music librarian job, which I actually still do. Uh, it's, it's pretty straightforward. I do the, um, or, so the band, the live band plays and they play through the commercial breaks. They play original music before the show. They play a warm up. Uh, after the show, they obviously play the closing theme and all that stuff. But they have all their, their the books, the music that they're, they're working with every week. It's got to get into those books, organized in the right way. So I get a list from Lenny. I go on, I put the music in the order. And then basically on Saturday morning, I put the books on the stands um, and then get to listen to the band which to me was like, okay, yeah, sign me up. I'll take the, and it pays great, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing that. And then after a while I started as the music copyist. So um, what, what that, what that turned into was, cause I also knew um, the program Sibelius, which now I guess it, it's much more uh, around like the, the notation software, everybody's, everybody's taking classes on that. We didn't even have classes back on, on that in, in NYU or anything, but um, basically that varies week to week. Uh, because sorry, my dog's around there sniffing around something. It's, it's no problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that varies week to week, but it, generally speaking on like a crazy week, it would be like, get the score, the, the music, uh, the, the head music of the music department would, uh, the like orchestrator in this case, it's, uh, Eli Brueggemann, but I used to work a lot with Catrice Barnes when she was there. They basically like write scores live to these sketches right so you'll see a big sketch that that goes up on the on the at the top of the show the monologues some big sketch right i'll be sitting there in the studio if it's a really involved one sometimes it's like they send me something i spit it out for parts sometimes it's a really involved one i'll put earphones in and they'll they'll be they'll have their sketch they need to do they'll be blocking it to camera they'll be they'll be telling me okay make sure you put a repeat at bar 17 oh did you catch that because we need to switch the chord there so we're going to switch it to a we're going to go back to the dominant you know whatever it is so you'll be sitting there working with them like changing their Sibelius or their paper score while they go through it and then I'll take it and spit it out and make it into the parts for the whole band and you know work with them on that and how how much how much does that change because I know uh because I've been just lately on an SNL binge, just kind of like oh, watching. Yeah. Oh, I've been watching because my family was, you know, every we had the the Christmas edition DVD oh, yeah. and like all the yeah. the best of. So you know, sure, it's yeah, like yeah. my family and I are big into it. But recently, I've been watching stuff and I was seeing like how the show changes up until basically ten minutes before it's over. Is like that you could be in the last sketch and that sketch could have been you know twenty minutes earlier, could have been in a different part of the show. Yep. How similar is that for the band? Is the band consistent? Like once the show starts, they basically know what, what they're doing. Yes, but it's not, it's sort of, I mean, mm-hmm. so what the way, I mean, it was like, let's, let's, as an example, the monologue. Um, and normally I, you know, I, 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 I've done this enough with them and it's been varied that I, I know like kind of what the, the structure can be. But so basically if it's a monologue and then you, you in the morning on Saturday, you run that with the, the host, you'll do the, the monologue with the host. Um, it'll have been worked out Friday night. Usually you'll work it with the host and whatever, but the full band won't be there. So the full band comes in on Saturday and then the full band will be playing through it. And those changes can happen then, but then you only get so much time, right? Cause they got to start rehearsing the other stuff at noon or whatever it's going to be. So then you get to dress and you get to air and you can cut things like after the dress rehearsal, you can cut things right before they can say, we're going to cut this back. Don't do the repeat, like right in your ears. So you, it, it can change. Like, I mean, that that's one example of the copyist thing, but I've been in a situation. So uh, another thing that I've done there is over the years, I've, I've subbed in both the Barry chair for uh, Ron Blake and Lou Delgado and the alto chair for Alex Foster. I played in the band with them as well. Mm-hmm. And I, there was a week, I can't remember. It was, the, it was like Bon Jovi was on. I don't remember. It was Steve Martin. I remember was also there and they decided that we're going to, they were going to have Steve Martin's band play as well. So they had, a musical guest, but they had Steve Martin's band play that, that was like sort of in flux and whatever. And they, at one point were playing some song in a commercial break and they're like, okay, you've got 20 seconds to get off the stage. Steve's coming on 20 seconds, 20 seconds. And then we stopped the song and we're, we're literally, I, I had to jump into the set. It was like a Bernie Madoff set. I'm sitting on the couch of the Bernie Madoff set 
Steve DeRay was literally hiding behind a pole because like he's on camera in the center, but there was nothing he could do. He had to just, we just had to like, okay, we're going to hide out, you know? So you, it, it changes. It can really change super last minute. How much do you guys, like when you were subbing, how much would you guys rehearse uh, leading up to the show? Cause I know you said that like the morning of a Saturday, you said, right. Was Saturday, when you get the original, sat, the full yeah, charts. Saturday morning. Saturday morning rehearsal, then if you need to come back, you usually get a 4.30 call to run the, the monologue again or uh, to do the theme so that they can run their thing and you're, you're on stage for that. And then it's a dress rehearsal. And then it's, then it's the, the show. And you've done engineering for the show too, correct? Well, sort of. I, I haven't done it for the live show. So what I do uh, up until this year is a little different because of the way the COVID thing is happening. But what I was doing for the past two seasons is on Wednesdays, we have the big read through. So everybody in the whole staff sits in that big read-through room. You've probably seen images of it. Um, it's a big giant table and everybody yeah. sits, Lauren, Lauren sits at the head of the table with the host and everybody, all the cast sits around and the writers are there and the producers. Is that like, the, that's and the Wednesday meeting, right? That's the Wednesday meeting. Yeah, the big Wednesday meeting. So what I would do for, what I was doing for that for the past two seasons is when they're doing that, they're reading through the scripts, we run sound effects. So sort of the, who I work, work under is a, a, someone's been there forever. Great, great guy, Marty Broombach does the, um, He's running Ableton, so he's running live sound effects to the thing. Maybe they need songs, maybe they need whatever it is. And then we have Eli, the music director, he's sitting at a piano and he sits there and he'll play anything that needs live accompaniment or tracks these built or other, that kind of stuff. And then I'd be sitting there next to them in the corner with the, uh, with the sound, I'm running the sound in that room. So that depends on what the week is. You never know what the sketch is gonna be. It could be they need, to, they need a handheld mic and they need to sound like the devil. I'm yeah. the guy that's going to run that into my logic session, turn on a plugin and an effect, and they'll use the handheld mic and I'll mute that and then put them on the other thing. So th that's what I was doing just for the read through. I wasn't doing anything for the live show. Um, mm -hmm. That would be through the, for the read through in the audio department. And how has your job changed now that for, for season 46 is it, are you in person with the ring? Or are you working at home? No, I'm, I'm there on Wednesday. So I'm still there and I still go in on, I, I still kind of go in on Saturdays. Now I'm not generally hanging out and watching the band because half the band is down on a different floor now. Yeah. I saw, uh, they, they did, I think it was the last show last Saturday, they panned over to the percussionist and I was like, this looks so familiar. And it was yeah. Fallon set. Yeah. They're down on, they're literally in Fallon studio. They just like cover up the couches and the, and the, the root stuff is all covered up and they're down. Yeah. On I six. saw white, I saw the white tarps and I was like, Hey, this looks weird. I was like, wait a minute. That's Fallon's old set from yeah. pre, pre COVID. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little crazy, but I mean, it's working there. I, I, I didn't believe, I didn't know we were going to be back. And I don't, I, you know, everybody was kind of like, well, I don't know if this is going to work, but they, they, they're making it work, but yeah, it's, it's, it's different now. I'm not doing any of the live sound because they're doing the, the read through happens on the studio floor in the eighth, on the eighth floor. You probably, you may have seen images on Instagram or whatever, where they're saying the host is there. That's the eighth floor mm -hmm. uh, where the show, the main studio, the floor. So the eight H studio. Yeah. Yeah. So that's being done now by the in-house that would normally do the show. They're having to do that because everybody's spread out and it's all this whole different. So it's not a small intimate thing in the same way. Gotcha. And had, since your time there, have you ever, this is something I'm just always curious about is have you ever experienced any major catastrophes during the live show? I mean, I was there for the Ashley Simpson thing. I don't um, think I know the Ashley Simpson thing. Oh, that was like a big, she, they, the, 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 the Pro Tools op uh, played the wrong song. Oh, and she, <laughs> and then they found out she was uh, lip syncing, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I know that. I just couldn't think of it for a second. Yeah. So I, I was, around, I was definitely around for that one. I saw what's that the, happen. What's the attitude in the studio like that when something like that goes on? Is everyone just kind of freeze and everyone's sweating well the way you know the way the way that show works it's like everybody's like so pro about everything it's like all right problems let's solve it you know what i mean and it's yes. like she has her own people they're going to solve they're going to deal with their problem i was everybody's panicking because who knows what you're going to do after that if something like that happens but at yeah. the same time the panic is like it's it's this panic that's so controlled because everybody is so they've we've they've seen it all you know what i mean everything's happened there from the craziest stuff that to, to, you know, simple stuff. So it's not necessarily a panic. It's just like a, how do we solve this kind of vibe, you know? Gotcha. And I also want to ask, cause besides working for SNL, you also produce a lot of sound alike music for media production. Yeah. Some, something I'm always really curious about is what is your process from start to finish of creating a song and how do you, what are your uh, techniques to make it sound accurate, but not so close that there's any chance of a lawsuit? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, 
first of all, a lot of that I learned from just watching the SNL guys do it. Like Lenny does it and Eli and, and then Leon, the, the music directors of the show, they've been responsible for that. More, it was it was a lot more um, of that because they needed a lot more live band and all that kind of stuff that wasn't, wasn't as digitally... Uh, race cars yeah i know um, my was, my neighborhood there's always like motorcycles and cars going by i wish i nah, i wish it, i didn't have to deal with it especially with doing live stuff but there's nothing i can do nah, so i just have to I, just, it, it makes it more authentic i think i i, I don't mind it at all well um, at, the, at the top of all of my instagram promos it says new york new york so that makes it the most authentic thing that you can hear that is sirens true. and people know that it's legit sorry yep. keep going no, no, I hear you though. That, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think I learned a lot from them just asking them, seeing how they did it, seeing how they like tell, dealt with the like, well, so how much can it sound similar? And, and you know, there there was a lot of talk after that Robin Thicke, uh, whatever that song was. the um, Blurred Lines with, uh, Mar wasn't that, it the Marvin Gaye's family? Marvin Gaye, yeah. After that verdict got reached, it became a little bit more difficult because it was just like, you got to be more careful because this, this was like, suddenly this makes everything copyrightable in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, so they're more careful about it. But uh, uh, so that's one of the ways. Uh, uh, sonically, my job usually in terms of those things, if I'm not co-writing or doing those things, would be more of a sonic place. And sonically, I don't have to worry about that. I can make it sound sonically from a, in terms of a mix and all that as close as I can. And that's not going to be infringing upon anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So a lot of my job is to just sit there and do an AB with everything and make sure that it sounds pretty close, you know? Yeah. Um, and then in terms of writing the songs, I, I work a lot with uh, this kind of brilliant singer and she can write a song in two seconds. Uh, Blair Reinhardt's her name, who's j just an amazing musician. She and I work a lot together and she, fortunately for me, she's responsible for writing the songs out and getting that stuff done. Usually if I'm involved in the writing process, so to speak, it's more to like we tweak things and all those things. I'm like second, second line. I'll just sit with it and like, maybe we take this part out of the verse, but let's move this over here, that kind of thing. She does the bulk of the, the actual writing of the tunes, which, um, which is awesome. And I feel so lucky to work with someone who's that talented and also, you know, navigates that stuff really well she's also like sort of a brilliant you know she does uh she used to be the music director for um dave Chappelle's show oh really yeah so she knows her way in and out of that stuff like nobody's business you know what i mean like if i ever have a question about bmi ask any of that stuff it's like blair can you help me out with this because uh I, you know i don't ever i don't normally get into that so i feel i'm just super lucky in that in that sense uh, you know, and occasionally, and I, and also, I'm willing to learn from it. So, like, I, I every time this stuff comes up, I'm always asking those questions because I don't want to act like it doesn't matter. It's, it definitely is something I'm happy to be. I mean, I'm, I feel lucky that I'm just getting involved in those projects. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to ask, like, wh who are the the main studios that you do that type of work for? Is there any particular company, or is it just uh, more freelance? No, it's, it's more freelance. I mean, she, she works with a lot of uh, uh, folks that do music placements. So they have, they have their libraries and people that they work with. And so she'll work with them. Um, and then they will get varied projects depending on what it is. You know what I mean? Like, like one of the, we had this song that Blair and I wrote that was in a, a Netflix movie. Uh, and that was just, you know, independent. I never dealt with Netflix at all. We didn't generally at all. We were just dealing with the, the, the front end of making the, making the track. I mean, sometimes I would have to get involved in, I was doing the mix as well. So I had to get involved in doing the, you know, sending the mix engineers and whatever they needed for their show, you know, their stuff. So, but generally speaking, it would be varied, just totally varied stuff. Like if, if NBC gets in contact or anything like that, it's like, well, that's through some other channel. So I'm not, I'm not usually the direct in line talking to the, the, the whatever producer or whatever it is. And that, I found that to be the case more times than not. And you're producing this stuff in Logic and Ableton mostly? Mostly Pro Tools, but oh, you're producing uh, any of them, in Pro Tools. Yeah, I do. I do most of my stuff. It, it, it gets done in Pro Tools, just in terms of. I guess you know it varies. I'll, I'll for instance, I'm working on a, a, a Disney song thing right now, and we needed a bass. It's very hard to get a acoustic bass recording done in four minutes when you need to email someone that's out in COVID land now, and like yeah. I need this, that, yeah. So I have a uh, Spectrosonics Trillion. It sounds great. We could play that in. And, you know, I did that in Logic. I just popped it over to Logic. Do I, I generally do all my MIDI stuff in Logic, to be completely honest, because mm -hmm. uh, I know it really well and I know all the ins and outs of it. So I'll do all that in Logic and then I'll, I'll bring it back into Pro Tools just for the mixing, the final, any of that kind of stuff. I do it all in, in, in Pro Tools. So are the patches also in Logic and then you're bouncing stems? Or are you bouncing straight up MIDI information and then using Pro Tools sound? Generally, I'm bouncing stems. Yeah, because I, I, I just, I, it honestly, like I, the work that I've done in Pro Tools on that stuff, it's, 
minimal. And I, I just find that like, uh, well, I know this way, way better already in logic. I'm going to stick with logic on this particular stuff. Gotcha. What do you think about, because I know a lot of audio engineers and producers, it, it can tend to be like a very intense culture with them, within them that has a lot of rules that people will follow. And then if people try to like kind of go away from that and try their own thing, there's a lot of negativity I found, you know, like you have to do something a certain way. It has to be mixed like this. And if it's not mixed like this, then you're an idiot and you're wrong. Do you think there's any merit to that more kind of? No, no, uh, you know, I, you, I you don't think so. It's not my, I mean, my MO is I'm, I feel like I'm always like coming at this thing from like some weird angle. Like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm always doing these things. Cause I met this guy and I did this thing and I did this and I said this and this, I never went to like audio engineering school. Right. I didn't, I, there was no pedagogy sort of the way that I came about these things. And I think anybody that also plays versus just as an engineer, like you're going to approach things a little differently. And, you know, you just kind of, for me, it's been, I've been picking it up as I go along. And, um, and I think, you know, obviously that gets honed and, and you spend, you, you learn a lot of on a, on a big project or this, that, and the other, and you need to do certain things, certain ways and you learn as you go. But I feel like now, especially right now, everybody's got to be their own engineer. Right. So it's like, I, and I kind of, I just taught a class, my, my engineering class this, this semester at the new school, I was teaching it and I, and I was setting up a session, kind of going through the organization of this particular session we're about to work on and how I do it. And the whole time it's like, yeah, you can do it. Whatever works for you is it, it, it's that's, that's sort of not the point. The point is what it sounds like at the end, right? Like it's not really about any of that, like other stuff. So I always kind of feel like that about anything. It's like, you do what you got to do. If it, if it works in the end, like it's fine. You know, I think that a lot of the times people talk about the difference between digital production and analog production. And I, I understand the arguments that yes, there's manufactured saturation will always be, uh, it won't be as accurate and it won't sound as good as analog saturation right. and compression and EQ, all that. The thing I tend to think is to hear it, you kind of have to go through and analyze it to even notice it. And, it, and I'm, in my opinion, is kind of like, if it sounds good, and the only way you notice it's that good. it's there is that you have to analyze it really deeply. Is it really that necessary? Do you do you think that there is a, a, an argument for using analog equipment over digital equipment? Well, uh, having done stuff in the studio, like, you know, large sessions in large studios, I think that there is a there can be a difference. Uh, and And I think that, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have like a massive mic locker and great in a, a particular sound. I mean, think about it. So many of the records that we listened to, that I listened to and that are still being listened to now were all recorded on similar consoles, right? In similar ways. So in a way we have this sort of collective consciousness of what we're used to with the sound of a, a great record, right? Mm -hmm. And and that get, seeps into our ears. And when we try to get, get to that place, uh, you know, it's going to be hard without having that exact same gear. And if you're able to use all that gear, you can get that sound a lot quicker. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But nine times out of 10, that's probably not what you're going to have. Right. So now I, I'll, I'll but when I was starting and I was using a, like the M box one or whatever it was called, the little blue and white thing, mm -hmm. uh, it was notably not good sounding. It was, yeah. it was like thin and, you know, barely there, but nowadays, I mean, I've got like uh, the Apollo stuff that I've been using and their, their, their plugs and all that stuff. It sounds killer. And you're already in a different place. If you have a, a decent microphone going into one of those, it's like, man, it's a, it's night and day. And, and yeah, I, my position, it's not that I won't use that stuff. And it's not that I don't see the merit to it. I have a, on my, on my desk here, I have a universal audio 6176, a compressor and pre and I love it. And with that, that and U87, I love putting this stuff in there. I love uh, recording with that. It makes the whole thing at home be like, it's, it's vibey and it's great. Yeah. The thing is, if it sounds good, it sounds good. That's, that's mm -hmm. really it. And if you think it sounds good, then it is good. And, uh, and that's, and that's what it is. You know what I mean? And yeah. so you can make it work with the worst digital thing you could make it work with the the worst microphones and all these things if that's the vibe you're going for it's fine i mean one of my favorite records ever is uh in the airplane over the sea by neutral milk hotel i don't know that record it's a it's a like a it, it, it was like an indie record my brother played it for we were on a road trip when we were, we were, i was like in college and he played that for me and it's it's crazy you gotta listen the whole thing through it's great it's this really vibey but it sounds 
terrible. It sounds awful. Like so much of the recording is distorted and ruined. The trumpet playing is awful. It's not a good sounding record, but it that's the thing. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not good because it's, but it is good because it's not good. You know, that's the thing. And and that's like, the vibe is there. It's all about the vibe anyway. So I don't, I don't really care what that record was. Reco- I mean, I'm interested in terms of like going back and listening, but if it sounds good or if you like the vibe, it's like, great. That's, that's amazing. Like if you listen to Sly Stone, if you listen to like um, Sly and the Family Stone stuff, some of that was recorded in like a trailer when he was like high on eight balls and, and go- losing his mind. And it sounds crazy and terrible, but it's awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's such great music that it doesn't matter. Have you gotten a chance to hear any of uh, Stevie Wonder just released two songs? Have you gotten a chance to hear any of those? Because No, what did they just come out? Yeah, they released um uh, I can't remember the I know the first one is uh, Can't Put It in the Hands of Fate. I can't remember the, the name of the second one not right off the top of my head. But I didn't it, know about that. Incredible. Incredible music. Um Really? But the thing is that I've noticed is that in terms of raw audio quality, they're not that great. Like, a, in fact, his vocal track in Can't Put It in the Hands of Fate, which I think was the major drop. He released two songs, but I think that was the first one. It's yeah. like clipping and it doesn't sound good, but I love it. Yeah. And it's and it's yeah. one of those things. It's and like if, if the vibe is there, then it doesn't matter if it sounds like technical shit. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that. The, I mean, obviously the real point is the music. Like if, if the, if the music is happening, it doesn't, who cares what it's like almost, you know what I mean? Like there's a reason why, I mean, there's some Beatles stuff that's like, you would never make any of those decisions. Mm-hmm. And obviously they were, they were groundbreaking. Let's let, we won't even go into that. But the point is that like, when you hear it now, it sounds like what the hell is going, I can barely hear the vocals. They're all panned hard left. Like, what is this? But you wouldn't even think about it if you didn't have the engineer brain on like my wife, doesn't doesn't care about any of that stuff she just likes the melodies and likes the songs right and that's really that's all that matters Mm -hmm. you know obviously there's there's the middle ground here we don't want to have something that just sounds like garbage because it's it sounds like like that's not the point but um if you if you're if your intent is there and the vibe is there and and if you don't know what you're doing you can get it in the hands with someone that knows what they're doing or if you can figure out the the bare minimum of what it needs to sound like it's like it really just doesn't matter it's the point is the music and a lot of this a lot of the time major projects even are not produced on a studio level because a lot of times like i know i saw a clip of the rapper logic was recording with this mic and sm7b into probably an apollo so great interface but it was in the back of an rv and it turned out to be a major hit have you ever have you worked on a major project that was kind of thrown together like that it might be like yeah, I, I got a call once. I was I was in college and I got a call to do a record. A friend of mine that I'd done something for uh, this 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 guy that, that we did a, this 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 band called the Revelations. I used to play horns in, and then we did some stuff for um, for the Wu Tang Clan. Actually, we did a, we did a, a horns for their record. And he then called me, and this was in college. He goes, he's like, hey, can you do this record? It's a spot out. This guy's got a studio out in New Jersey. I don't even remember the name of the producer, but I was like, sure. So of course, cause I said sure to everything. And he's like, Oh, by the way, it's on flute. And I was like, well, glad I found that out right before I left the house. Cause I was like, I was going to bring my horn. And he didn't, I didn't, he didn't even ask me if I played flute. Luckily I sort of did at that point. I, you know, I, I had enough chops where I was like, okay, this doesn't, see, I'm not getting charts and stuff and they don't expect classical music on this. So anyway, I show up, it's the craziest place I've ever been. I didn't have a car at the time. I felt like New Jersey at that time felt like I was in, you know, I might as well have been in Texas. I, I didn't know where the heck I was. Yeah. Cause you know, when you go 45 minutes out of Manhattan, when you're three years in New York, you're like, Oh my God, I've, I'm on a, a crazy road trip. You're anyway, in a totally so I, different country at that point. Yeah. It felt like it. But so I show up at this guy's house and it's like a kind of a disaster zone, the house. But then I go into his place and he's got, he's recording me on like a, it was how did he have it set up? It was like going through an MPC or something. And it was like through this whole thing. And I was like, whatever. And he had an SM7B and then he, he, he played me, he played me the tracks back. And he's like, can you just like make something up at the end? And I was like, is that it? And he's like, yeah, just, just play something at the end of this, like whatever you want to do. And I was like, okay. So I like played a couple takes. He was like, great, man. Thanks. I'll uh, just put your name down here. We'll get you the money. I was like, this, I'm never going to get paid for whatever this was. Like they, they, the friend of mine told me it was like a, a, a it should be like a good thing and blah, blah. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to trust my buddy and that's fine. And, and it's fine. So I, I get, I get a check from universal music and it was a, it was TI's record King that was multi-platinum. Oh, wow. 
And it, and at the end of the song, or I think maybe that's the song I'm on. I don't know. I think the album's called King, and I think the song I played was called King. I don't know. But uh, at the end of that, there's a flute solo that's like kind of out of tune. And because I, I didn't, I don't know. And I didn't do another take. It wasn't like he was checking that. He was like, I like the vibe, so we're good. And so there's a flute solo on the end of a, a, a platinum record that was me as I was like, you know, a college kid in somebody. It's like, yes, I have done that in like, a, that felt like the major way, you know? Has there been anything that you were a direct producer on that had a similar vibe where it wasn't just you being called in, but you were like thrown into a situation where you had to create a whole thing under like less than... Uh, uh, wanted circumstances are under a, a short amount of time. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, it, all the time. And now, especially, like, I feel like I'm, I'm doing that more and more because now everything is like, let's get this done quickly or whatever. So, um, you know, and it, it varies. It varies on the project, the bands I'm playing with or whatever it is. But yeah, def definitely there's, there's been moments where it's been like, all right, I just got to get this done, whatever it turns out to be, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you make... It, Kind of the thing is, is like you, it's you can't sit there and say, "Give me more time." They're not. It's not the way it's going to work, right? So you mm -hmm. just kind of like, "All right, this bass sounds terrible." So what do I get to do about this? One of the things is, as you go through this, you learn like, "Okay, I got these great bass amp simulators, or I've got this great this, that, or the other." I mean, you know, we did uh, for a Fallon thing. We we uh, Tyler, my my uh, recording partner, who that we have the company together, mm -hmm. he had to do all the guitars for something was due. It's due, you know, in two days. We need this project done. We worked through the night. He had to do all the guitars, and he didn't. He couldn't play in his house with his amps and stuff. He used his amp sims. He got it done. We made it happen. I was in L.A. and I'm sitting there like trying to come up with a perfect. Uh, drum sound that copied the like weird keyboard drums that were played on a Billy Joel song. And it's like, okay, I put the headphones on and I work when everybody's asleep in the house and I work through the night and that's what it is. You and know? where was that? Was that broadcast on television? Yeah, it was for the, uh, that one was for the, um, was that, that was, we didn't start the fire. It was the sound of like, a, we didn't start the fire, but I think it was a Marvel's uh, a Marvel Avenger thing. So we, we gotcha. did all that. It was us and, um, and, uh, and Tyler played all the guitars. He mixed it. We, I was doing the, the sounds and editing and, and tuning and all that kind of stuff that happened. And, and it was like, like super last minute. We also did the, uh, the Golden Globes once and like some of the recording, they needed to add vocals to something and they needed to do this. And some of it was like just random people in their iPhones. So we wow. had to mix those in and whatever. It just last minute stuff comes up. And if it, you know, you, you don't, you don't say like, go re-record this with, because I need a better track. It's like, well, I'll, I'll narrow this down to the, just the, the telephone thing. I'll put it way down here and I'll do this thing to it. I'll tune it up and then I'll mix it in, you know, and do you, you do what you can. Do you think you could do what you do without external plugins? Like if you were, if you only were using stock plugins with a DAW, do you think you could get that kind of work done? Well, you know, to be honest with you with logic, I think that their built-in plugins offer a lot more flexibility because there's so many more of them. Mm -hmm. um, and for the longest time, I didn't own any plugins or anything. I was just using logic stuff because that's what I was working in primarily. Gotcha. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that uh, Pro Tools just has less of the Sonic stuff to do with that. Like, you know, they're just not built in. Uh, Ableton does, on the other hand, though, you could get a lot done with Ableton. I just only use Ableton for live stuff. I, playing wise, I, I, I don't do a lot of recording or mixing or anything in it, but not that it can't be done. It's, it's got a lot of plugins and all that stuff in it, too. So I think it's possible. I mean, I know that there are specific situations you get in that um, like yesterday we had to strip some vocals from a reggae track and we needed to get the vocals off. And it was like, it made it a whole lot easier to not have to go jump through hoops to use like the center uh, plugin from Waves, you know, gotcha. that just was like instant. So a lot of it has to do with the convenience factor. It makes a big difference to have some of some things that you use all the time. But mm -hmm. you, I, I'm, I'm glad that I trained on the stock stuff only because I knew it's, I was able to learn its limitations and know what I could do with those things before I was like getting into these more complicated. And also, some of the stuff on all these plugins is like, you can do 40 knobs that do this thing. It's like, why would I ever use that? I don't ever yeah. need those things. So Just it's a nice bare to know. Necessity. Yeah. It's nice to know that you have the essentials. I mean, think about it in the studio. If you've got a compressor that has two knobs, I mean, the, you're good. The LA three, like you're not, it's not going to be a problem. It's going to sound cool. You just have to know how to make it work. Yeah. Here, we have a question actually in the chat. Uh, this is from a, a while ago, but I didn't, I just wanted to wait till the end. Um, okay. we, when you were talking about, your work schedule at Saturday Night Live and running around. Someone said uh, it was Ian Miller, uh, one of the one of the few people who is always watching this show live. Incredible guy. <laughs> Shout he's, out. In, he's been in every single episode. Oh, uh, awesome. He says sounds like a very intense work situation. What do you do to relax? 
that's a good question. That's a good question. It generally, it's like after you're done with that, you come back and want put on like a ridiculous TV show and zone out. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is, isn't the show you work on the ridiculous TV show that a lot of people relax to? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't really watch the show. I don't really watch the show at all. Um, see, I always look forward to it. That's like the, the end of my week now that, see, I don't have TV, but I, you know, right. I, there's, I, I got a service so I can watch uh, Antenna TV, you know, the major networks. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, um, yeah. Well, there's a website that does it for you, like a legit company. It's not... Um, yeah, it's not stolen I, or anything, yeah. Yeah, I look forward, exactly. I look forward now, because now that I can do that, I can wait till the end of the week and just watch something that's purely just funny. And just, yeah, yeah. you know, there's no, there's yeah. no trying to be serious. It's just like right. entertaining and funny. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because in the beginning when I was working there, I was, I was like, oh, you know, everybody you talk to would be like, ah, I don't really watch the show or whatever. You're like, really? And then you realize once, once I started doing more stuff there, you realize you actually see the show like three times before the show actually goes on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you're there Wednesday, you hear all the sketches, like 40 of them. And then you hear those ones and they obviously cut a bunch. And then you do a dress rehearsal and you've probably done rehearsals as well. So you're hearing all the rehearsals and then you do a dress rehearsal. They, they, so where you do them again. And then by the time 1130 rolls around, you've seen the show a bunch. And it's like, I get why you're not going to go home and watch the show again. You've watched it all these times. So, you know, generally speaking, I'll sometimes I'll go back in and see like, Oh, how did that one go where this happened, this was happening, or we were, we were curious about how they do the ins and outs on this one or whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know, but generally speaking, it's like, you know, I don't, it doesn't, I don't have TV either. So I, I don't really generally watch any of that stuff either. Gotcha. You know, and talking about your work on SNL is, is, you know, doing all the copyist work. You were also a copyist on the film, the Joker. Am I correct about that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did work with the, the copyist team on that. Yeah. Gotcha. How'd you get that job? So that's uh, that was through. So I sometimes when I was I would be out on like a tour or something, I would I would need to miss a show, mm -hmm. which I always always regret to do. But, you know, I work with bands that sometimes like, you know, you got to You got to make the gig in Japan or something. Right. Yeah. So um, I would end up needing a sub to be in case there was a copy thing. We never know if there's going to be one, if there's a, a copy thing. So I, I got a name from um, a friend of a guy who could do it. His name is Jim Bruning. Who's, he's a super awesome guy. He's usually a music editor, but he also does music copying. And we started, I, I would call him and say, Hey man, can you, can you sub if, if need be on this, on this uh, a Saturday for me, if there's a copy thing and it was cool. So he would start to call me for little things that he would work on um, movies and stuff. And he would work with different contractors as a music editor and um, we would do like we've done uh, the marvelous Miss Maisel and and mm -hmm. uh, other a few other smaller movies and all that kind of stuff. So the Joker came about through him, um, and that was at, you know it was a large that was a full orchestra the whole thing that was pretty pretty intense. It was it was a lot of fun. It was awesome to hear though. It was really great um, to be in a session like that. But you know sometimes it's like simple stuff like uh, uh, we would I used to do um, the. Uh, Kimmy Schmidt, uh, 30 Rock, all th things like that that would be associated with NBC people and all those kind of things. So you know, your name is within those people's. Uh, they they have your name in their in their roster of like, oh, I need a sub for this thing. That guy does it for SNL and probably can do it for this one. That kind of thing. Gotcha. So that movie that that's an NBC Universal film. Uh, no, I don't know actually what the what the Joker is. That one was just because of Jim, who works independently with all these different contractors gotcha. and everything. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, Jeff. I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Oh man, thanks I, for having me. I really, I don't know why I said that so relaxed. Like it's like one of those like NPR. <laughs> Welcome to NPR yeah, exactly. News. You ever see that? Uh, Parks, Terry Gross. Yeah, you ever see that? That uh, you ever watch Parks and Recreation? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. One of my favorite jokes in that whole show is they have uh, the NPR show Thoughts for your thoughts. Right. And hosted uh, by hosted by uh, uh, Homer Simpson, right? Dan Castellaneta. Yeah, it is. It's nice. the guy who plays yeah. Homer Simpson. Yeah. That guy's got a freaking career. You want to talk about a freaking? Yeah. Well, how long has he been playing the same character? Like 40 freaking years? Yeah, I know. Those guys, all those guys. It's amazing what they're doing over there. It's, it's pretty crazy. It's unbelievable. But I love that. I just love when he does the thought for your thought and, and they have Amy Poehler on or Leslie yeah. and she comes in. She says, uh, she's like, now we're going to be playing a clip of Miles Davis played <laughs> over uh, a clip of Duke Ellington. And then, <laughs> and then she, they play it. She makes this like weird face. And after going to music school for so long. Oh, I know. That's one of the funniest jokes because I would go into a class and hear something like that. Like, oh, today yep. we're listening to two separate recordings of Duke Ellington playing the same song and we're going to play oh, them at the exact same time.
I, yeah, that's so funny. You know how that is. Like you watch when you're when you're deep into the jazz thing. I remember when I saw there was a movie when I, I guess it was in high school or something that that movie Jerry Maguire came out with Tom Cruise. Do you know that movie? Mm-hmm. I, I, I do know it, but I've never actually seen it. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw it once because my girlfriend wanted to see. Like I didn't care about a romantic comedy at that age. It was not really my thing. But right. I, I remember seeing it, and I remember I think it's I think it's uh, Haitian fight song comes okay. on the the um what's his name uh why am I blanking on the bass player's name that did uh, Tr- Mingus. It's Mingus okay. and uh, Haitian fight song comes on and I'm like, Oh my God. Like, does anybody else realize that Haitian? And of course no one cares, but I was like, this is amazing. You know, yeah. anytime you know, there's like a jazz joke or whatever, it's just the most, it's the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> that's how I, that's why I'm too, especially not like nowadays it's more like any type of reference to like, anytime someone references a specific thing about music, that is not just a common thing. It's not just right. like, it's not just like when people reference like, you know, John Lennon or like Michael right, Jackson. When right, someone right, makes right, like right. an obscure reference, I'm like, ah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, talk, yeah. Talking about those old jazz records, though, you want to talk about music that honestly, like in terms of their audio quality sounds like crap, but it doesn't matter. Those old totally. jazz records like that. Incredible. So many of them. So many. And there's so some of them are so quiet and some of them. But, you know, a lot of the cool thing about that, though, is it's a lot of what we talked about before, about like the fact that you can have an all Neve console and it has a certain sound. All that Rudy Van Gelder stuff, it all sounds like you can immediately tell that it's from that studio and that record and that mm-hmm. that whole thing. All that RDG stuff sounds totally the same. And in the end, like it may not be the best or the worst, or whatever it is, but it sounds great no matter what. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The playing well, Jeff- matters, though. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's <laughs> that's like, I mean, because there's a lot of times, I think, especially with modern producing, it becomes, and that I do the exact same thing, is you start to think like, oh, I care more about the sound of it than the actual content. Like, can yeah. you take, can you strip everything away and go sit at a piano and play this song? And is it good? You yeah. know, without yeah. all of the, the, the Ableton plugins and all this cool stuff. Right, right, right. In my right. case, Cubase plugins, which people oh, will make fun yeah. of me for. <laughs> no use whatever you gotta use if it's good it's good absolutely well jeff thank you so much for coming on today i appreciate it so much thanks for having me scotty appreciate yeah, it ha- have a, a good rest of your week i know you're gonna you're gonna be busy for the next couple days it's gonna be nuts but you know it is what it is yeah well thank you so much and to everyone who's watching who watched thank you so much there'll be a replay of this up also if you want to get this podcast you can hear the audio version on spotify apple podcasts i almost said apple music apple podcasts and google podcasts wherever your podcasts are found thank you all for listening And have a good day. Wow. Wow.